Welcome to Behavior Analysis in Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis in Practice is a podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in the journal Behavior Analysis in Practice by interviewing each paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of the paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask after reading it. Hello and welcome back to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. I'm your host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Solvay Regina University. This episode marks the official kickoff of Season 2 of BAPCAST. In this season, we take a look at several papers published in Volume 14 of Behavior Analysis and Practice, Issues 1 and 2, that were released in March and June of 2021. We have some really interesting papers and interviews this season, and I'm incredibly excited to share them all with you. Just like Season 1, our release schedule will consist of an episode each week released on Mondays. Be sure to follow us on whatever podcast player you use so that you can get access to our latest episodes. Now, for today's episode, we decided to take a break from our typical structure of interviewing authors about recent works published in Behavior Analysis and Practice to give you a special episode focused on a topic that many listeners have written me about, which is information about the publication process. That includes information about how to select journals to submit work to, timelines to expect, strategies to be successful, and more. To answer these listener questions, I reached out to a few ABAI journal editors with a ton of experience in all things publication and asked them to come on the show today to serve as a panel. Typically, I would read an introduction to each guest before playing the interview. But all the guests today are so accomplished that it would take me the entire episode to give you their career highlights. Therefore, I'm going to keep introductions simple today. Today we have Claire St. Peter joining us from Education and Treatment of Children, Chris Newland joining us from Perspectives on Behavior Science, and friend of the show Stephanie Peterson joining us from Behavior Analysis in Practice. Without further ado, here is my interview with three ABAI journal editors about the publication process. Hello, Claire, Chris, and Stephanie. Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. We're really excited to have you. Before we jump into the purpose of this podcast today, I'm wondering if each of you would introduce yourselves, say what journal you're representing today, maybe tell us a little bit about the, the scope and the aim of the journal, and maybe even the, the typical readers of the journal. Sure. Well, thanks for having us, Cody. This is a, a real pleasure. Uh, as a listener to the Babcast, it's fun to be on the other side. Um, so my name is Claire St. Peter. I'm the current editor-in-chief for Education and Treatment of Children which is a relatively new ABAI journal, but a relatively old journal. Um, So Education and Treatment of Children actually started in 1968 um, under the name uh, School Applications of Learning Theory or SALT. Uh, 
and changed names to education treatment of children in the 1970s and became a ABAI affiliated journal just in 2020. So we're, we're really excited to be part of um, this exceptional grouping of other scholarship. Uh, education and treatment of children historically and contemporary, contemporarily has prided itself on having diverse uh, scholarship from both full-time researchers and practitioners uh, who are working with children, as might be implied from our title, uh, and often in educational settings. So we've got a large focus on school-based applications, although it's not exclusive. So for readers who are interested in clinic or home-based work, we do publish that work as well. Uh, we include pretty diverse populations in our journal too. So we have a lot of studies that include um, neurotypical individuals, as well as individuals with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or who are uh, at risk for emotional and behavioral disorders. And in fact, we have a large emphasis in the journal on uh, emotional behavioral disorder applications and populations. And our readership reflects that breadth as well. So we try to publish things that are going to advance broad scholarship but that also are gonna have direct applicability to people who are working with children out in the world, uh, including direct practitioners and teachers. Uh, so individuals who have varying levels of training um, within behavior analysis. Excellent, thank you for sharing. Chris, do you wanna talk about the journal that you're affiliated with? I'm Chris Newland. Uh, I am editor-in-chief of Perspectives on Behavior Science. Um, this journal used to be uh, the behavior analyst. Uh, it is experiencing a, a second life, I guess. Uh, it is in, I think it's third or fourth year as POBS. Uh, and the transition from um, the behavior analyst to POBS has meant some, some changes for the journal, including um, specifically changes in the, the scope uh, and uh, the scope of the journal and, uh, uh, and the sorts of papers that we're interested in. Um, <clears throat> it is broader, I think, in scope than uh, the behavior analysts. We're trying to encourage uh, publication uh, uh, authors from areas that are adjacent to behavior analysis to publish in our journal. And, uh, and to that end, we're doing a lot of special sections. But to get back to the journal itself, the journal is um, a review journal. We are interested and we publish uh, review, review papers, uh, methodological papers, uh, some theoretical papers uh, that pertain to behavior analysis and other areas, adjacent areas of behavior science. So we don't publish, unlike the other journals <coughs> represented here, we don't publish papers that generate um, primary data but we are certainly um, interested in papers that work with primary data uh, that have already been published. Uh, so reviews, methodology, uh, theoretical contributions. The readership itself is, of course, um, members of ABBA. Uh, and, but again, we hope to expand the, the readership. So to that end, we have special sections um, going on in a number of different areas, including a couple of uh, uh, coming up that I'm very excited about. Uh, one on quantitative, we've got a new one that's about to come out on, on direct instruction in 
um, and in um, cooperation with uh, BAP, we've got, and that's coming out in September for our journal. The, um, we've got uh, two coming out in December on quantitative uh, applications of quantitative methods and one on, uh, uh, on, on novel approaches to analyzing um, single subject data. And then uh, another one that's just getting off the ground that your readership might be interested in is uh, public policy and uh, behavior science and public policy. Uh, we're just getting, we're just starting to get papers in on that. Uh, and uh, if you're interested, you still have time before the uh, due date for papers. Thank you. That, that's really helpful, interesting information about that journal. Stephanie, you want to tell us a little bit about behavior analysis and practice? Yeah, sure. As Claire said, thanks for having us. Um, so I'm Stephanie Peterson. I'm the Editor-in-Chief for Behavior Analysis and Practice. And uh, as Chris mentioned, um, his being broader than the behavior analyst, uh, I think behavior analysis and practice is a relatively broad uh, journal in terms of the scope. Uh, but the primary mission of it is to publish papers that directly relate to the applied practice of behavior analysis. Um, so the readership is largely practitioners who are trying to implement behavior analytic strategies in environments out in the world to try to solve real problems and work with a variety of populations. We publish a lot of work in the autism area because there are a lot of practitioners in the autism area. And those papers sometimes span from, uh, from working directly with children to uh, a lot of organizational type issues, staff training, supervision, um, and so on. But uh, the journal is not restricted to autism related work and we encourage work from other areas of practice and um, hope to see lots of submissions across the board in those areas, anything from clinical issues to uh, organizational behavior management issues, um, maybe non-human animal training <laughs> and so on. Uh, so we would welcome submissions in any of those areas. BAP publishes a variety of different types of papers as well. So some of the papers are data-based and represent uh, data-based illustrations of the applications of behavior analysis to help people with the kinds of issues they're trying to solve. But we also publish um, public uh, discussion papers. We publish tutorials on terms or techniques. Um, sometimes you'll see critical book reviews, uh, technical articles about how to do certain things. So um, there's, that's one of the things I really like about it is there's kind of a variety of the types of papers you'll see in there too. So there's always something a little different. Um, as Chris mentioned, we have sort of a collaborative effort going on. There's a special issue in direct instruction that'll be coming out in September for BAP as well. Uh, so the papers in perspectives on behavioral science will be complementary to the ones in BAP. They won't be the same papers. So we would encourage readers to look at both of those uh, issues. And uh, along with that in the September issue, we'll have another special issue on precision teaching. So we have a lot of um, really nice papers on that topic. In December, I expect that we will be coming out with a special issue on acceptance and commitment therapy. 
uh, in BAP, and then probably early in 2022, we will have a special issue coming out on racism and issues surrounding that. So I encourage people to keep their eyes open for those. Um, I'm entertaining two or three proposals now for other special issues that we hope to be announcing, and I, I won't say anything about those at this point, but keep your eye on the website and on our Facebook page for the announcements about those. And, you know, maybe there'll be some opportunities to submit papers on those topics. Thank you all for sharing about your journals. Claire, did you have any special issues that you wanted to, to plug for ETC? Were there any on the horizon for you? We have a long-standing collaboration with the Teacher Educators uh, for Children with Behavior Disorders group uh, who hosts a conference every year, and we uh, have a special issue yearly that's associated with that conference. So the call for papers for that special issue should be coming out soon, um, but it is limited to folks who are participating in that conference group. Um, and that's the only one right now that we have on the horizon. Awesome. Thank you. So I'm very excited to have such a distinguished panel of ABAI journal editors with the amount of experience you all have in publication issues to come on the show today to talk about questions that, that listeners had about publication issues. And I sort of separate those questions into things that researchers or authors or prospective researchers and authors have questions about. And then questions about the review slash editor sort of standpoint of people who maybe just want to understand more what things look like behind the curtain, or maybe people who are potentially interested in getting involved in that part of the process. So I'm going to start off questions along the researcher author standpoint, and then we'll work our way into the reviewer editor standpoint. So the first question I have that a lot of researchers or prospective authors posed was trying to understand the considerations that someone should make when deciding which journal to submit research to. Each of you talked about the different scopes and readership of your journals, but could you give us some, some just general consideration for people who are working on a paper or maybe even considering a research project that some considerations that they should be making or, or things they should be thinking about when deciding which journals to submit to. Like how do you all decide which journal to submit your work to? Well, um, I'll jump in on that one, start us off. Um, obviously one, one of the first things to do is to check the mission statement of the journal and make sure that your work seems to fit within whatever the stated mission of the journal is. I also um, tell my students to read some of the papers that have been published, especially recently in the journal and see if their work sort of resembles that in some way um, and seems to fit within the overall uh, sort of milieu of the papers that are uh, in those most recent issues. And I also encourage them to look at the editorial review board and see what scholars are on it. And does their work sort of, does, does your work sort of resonate with the kind of work they do? Um, 
because that means they're probably going to be receptive to similar kinds of work. And particularly if, if my students are writing a paper that's based on a paper that was published in that journal, for example, an extension of a study that was published in that journal, it, that seems like a logical choice for where to submit it. So those are like the most immediate things I can think of. In addition to the ones that Stephanie just mentioned, so Stephanie mentioned the mission of the journal. And in addition to looking at that, each of our journals, and Chris alluded to this a moment ago, has types of submissions that we take. And so, for example, um, Chris noted that they're not doing primary empirical work publishing in POBS, but so that wouldn't be a good outlet, even if you were like, yes, this is about behavior science. Um, it wouldn't be a good outlet for a primary empirical study. BAP has technical articles, I believe, um, and but ETC does not. So if you wrote an article about how to implement functional communication training within a classroom, even if it fits within the mission of ETC, like we may not have a great type of paper for that. And so BAP may be a better fit for that, that particular um, article because it fits with the kind of the submission type in addition to the mission of the journal. I would add a couple of things to that. First, um, Stephanie and Claire, exactly right. You know, read the table of contents, look at some papers, um, read the mission statement. Um, we get submissions frequently that I would just want to write them back and say, read the mission statement. This doesn't belong. Um, <clears throat> I'll just add two things to that for POBS. One, as a general rule of thumb, if there's a methods and a results section, it probably doesn't belong in POBS. Now, that's not 100% true for meta-analyses or, or certain types of technical reviews or for certain types of technical theoretical papers, there might be. But in, you know, as a course rule of thumb, if there's a methods and results, it probably doesn't belong. If there's a question, I get um, emails frequently from people sending me an abstract, sometimes sending me a paper, does this belong? It saves everybody time if we can um, deal with that right at the outset. So I'm happy to um, field those sorts of emails. Um, the other thing too, and this is one way that POBS is different from TBA, uh, from the behavior analyst. Um, we're not just about behavior analysis. So it's, it's not about how necessarily about how behavior analysis applies to this, that, or the other. It also for POBS is how we make contact and how we interact with people in allied sciences, um, including substance abuse, including policy issues, um, any other allied area that has to do with behavioral science, behavior science um, that might overlap with um, uh, POBS would certainly be welcome. And again, if there's any question, I'm always happy to um, field emails about that. As Chris was saying that he would be happy to field emails about the sort of scope of a paper going to his journal, both Stephanie and Claire are shaking their head yes. So I'm gonna assume that the same goes for behavior analysis and practice and, and ETC as well. From perhaps maybe an author standpoint from your own experiences, at what point of the, of the writing process are you potentially identifying a journal? Are you finishing a paper and then going, which, which journal would this paper that's already finished fit into? 
or are you potentially thinking about specific journals when you set out to write a paper? So for me, that depends on what the project is. And I'll give you a couple of examples. We are in the process of writing a paper that reviews um, published research in Java and we in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis. And so we knew from the outset of starting that project that we were going to be writing it for a Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis um, submission. But other work that we're doing right now, um, including some of the work on treatment integrity, could fit with a variety of different journals. And so as we get to the point of analyzing the data and writing it for publication, that's where we're making the final determinations to make sure that our introduction and discussion in particular are tailored to the mission and readership of that particular journal. Uh, it, and it's important to do that latter step, even that step of, of tailoring, in my opinion, even if you're not starting from the get-go with this is where we think we're going to send this particular paper, because even journals that have a lot of overlap, you might write a little bit differently. So even a paper for education and treatment of children versus behavior analysis and practice, we both deal with practice related issues and we both have diverse audiences that include full-time scholars and full-time practitioners. You're probably going to emphasize different things, particularly in your introduction and discussion across those two journals. So the consideration of outlet is important for authors at some point in the process. Yeah, and I would just tag on to that to say uh, ditto for my lab, but also, you know, sometimes you submit a paper to a journal and it's not accepted. And it's not that the paper is bad, it may just not be a good fit or whatever, and you decide to submit to another journal. Um, I, I would like to expand on Claire's point to say, it's important when you do that to make sure you understand the mission of that next journal and that you're going back and looking at your paper and looking at the voice in the paper and saying, does it sort of speak to the audience of this next journal that you're going to submit to? And, you know, let, let audience control guide you a little bit in terms of what you need to say, uh, because it may very well be that you need to do some edits to the paper to make it appropriate for that next journal. So sometimes as we're writing things up, uh, or as we're finishing up a study, we'll say, you know, here's the neat thing about this study, and that will help us decide. Like, there's a lot of different ways we could take, write about this, but this was a neat aspect of it. So let's tailor it to this journal because it really would fit that audience. So like if it was a really cool one that we think teachers should read, like I'm going to submit it to ETC because I, I know that that's their audience. And then when we write it, we're going to think about the teachers and we're going to write it so that the teachers really uh, get the point of what we're trying to say in that paper. Just hopping on a small resubmission bandwagon while we're on it, um, is that if you do any amount of scholarship, you will have a paper rejected. Like period, that's it, the end, you will have a paper rejected. And as Stephanie said, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad paper or it's an unpublishable paper. But if you've submitted to a reputable journal, you should have gotten quality feedback on that initial submission. And so in addition to thinking about the mission of the next journal that you might send that paper to, I would highly encourage authors to be, don't be defensive about the feedback um, that you might receive as a process through that initial editorial process. Really look at your paper and think about how you might revise it. 
This is important because you'll end up with a better product in the end. And also because our field is really small. So if someone sends a paper to education treatment of children and for whatever reason, um, it's practice oriented and it's not published in our outlet, they may send it to behavior analysis and practice or vice versa. If that is a replication of you know, Professor X's work, the odds that my associate editor had sent it to Professor X are high. And the odds that Stephanie's associate editor sends it to Professor X are high. And one easy way to annoy Professor X is to have taken none of Professor X's advice from the first round of submission. Um, so do be responsive to that feedback, even if you're not resubmitting to the same journal. Claire, you just took the words right out of my mouth. Having been Professor X in that situation <laughs> at times, yes, it is a good way to annoy somebody. But the other way to look at it, and I, I, this is something I tell my students, look at the reviews, read them, throw them against the wall, figuratively speaking, jump up and down and scream and snort about how they don't know what they're talking about, then come back a day or two later and take another look. If it's, a, if it's a good quality journal, the reviewers were are experts in the area, their peers, their colleagues, uh, and they know what they're talking about and take it as free um, consultation uh, <clears throat> from somebody who is an expert in the review and, from, and take the perspective that, you know, if somebody, if one person who's an expert is confused about something, there's a really good chance that other experts and people who are not expert are gonna be confused about that thing too. So rewrite. Regarding what journal to send it to, and I suspect others have had this similar experience too, my students and I have frequently started a paper with one journal in mind. And you know, in the, in the context of writing being discovering what you have to say, as you get through the writing and the, the analysis and the writing and, and everything else, you come to realize that maybe another journal is more appropriate. That's okay, that's part of the process. Uh, but be sure, um, as both Stephanie and Claire said, that the introduction is tailored to that journal, to its, to its reviewers and to its authors. And just a final note, the rejection is of the paper. The rejection is not of you. Um, it is of that one paper, which is only a part of <laughs> what you are. So focus on that part of it. Yeah. I love the suggestion to step away from the review after reading it one time through. I've personally found that to be a very effective method. It can be very difficult getting critiques of your work. And there'll be times where I've read a review and thought, yeah, that's that's ridiculous. I don't know what they're talking about. I, I don't agree with them at all. Step away from it from a day or two, come back and go, oh my goodness, <laughs> they are so right. They're so correct about this paper. I'm so glad they gave me the feedback. And I think if you, as, as you all sort of mentioned, if you can look at reviews as being really free advice from extremely qualified, well-accomplished people and understand that they're just trying to make your paper have the best impact it possibly can. I, th I think if you can keep th that in mind when you're reading your reviews, it really helps the process be as least aversive as possible.
but it is certainly something that's difficult and it's par for the course, as you all have said. Yeah, and I've heard some people, Cody, uh, make a rule that they have to, um, you know, come back to it within a certain time period and rewrite or make some sort of active decision about it. Because uh, I can think of one paper of my own in particular that I was so mad about that it's still sitting in a drawer and it's been years. Um, and now I'm kicking myself for like, really, uh, like set those emotions aside and you should have had those data published a long time ago. Um, and I think it's really easy to, uh, to do that and not get back to it. So like sometimes setting a rule for yourself is maybe a good idea. Maybe I should take that advice. <laughs> yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. On the topic of submitting to journals, perhaps for the first time, or maybe if you get rejected from one journal, finding an alternative journal, are there any resources or suggestions that you would provide the listeners about ways to identify journals beyond the three journals that we're talking about today? Um, I can start with that. One is to look at your um, reference list and see what journals you're referring to. There's a good chance that uh, the editorial board and the readership and the associate editors and so forth are going to be on board with, with your paper if there's one journal that you find yourself referring to a lot. Um, I've, I can't say that I've encountered any good set of rules other than what's already been said. You know, identify a few journals that are possibilities, look at the table of contents, look at some of the papers in it um, and, and so forth. And, you also want to look at the visibility of the journal in the community that you're interested in reading. So that could be mean one of two things. Um, one, it could mean looking at impact and impact factors and those sorts of things. Uh, that is um, useful for the broader community, but, but and, and can be useful, of course, for things like promotion and tenure, but it's not the only thing. And you know, there, sometimes you're interested in reading, reaching a particular community. Um, teachers of children with disabilities, I mean, uh, for example, you know, you know, a broadly based journal may not find its way to that community. And that sort of a consideration can also be important. Um, so those are two things that I would offer. I was trying to think like similarly, if, if I was writing a paper that I maybe wanted pediatricians to read or something, and that's not a group of journals that I'm really all that familiar with, except for some like really big ones that we've probably all heard of. Um, I might, you know, try to find a pediatrician colleague and ask them, what do you read? Like, I've got this paper uh, that I want to publish. What, what are some common journals that that people in your field read that I could go look at and see if this might fit. So if I wanted to access occupational therapists with a piece I'm writing, I might, you know, approach some of my OT colleagues and ask them those questions. Or if you're starting working in a particular area. So if you are addressing issues that are really relevant to OTs, consider collaborating with one. 
um, so that that person becomes part of your research team and they have a vested stake in where it also goes and can help inform some of those decisions. What collaborations do in addition to those consultations that Stephanie mentioned is that they help you frame your language in a way that's gonna be consumable to that particular audience too. Um, you know, one of the things about behavior analysts is that we talk a little funny uh, and we tend to sometimes use jargon without thinking about the fact that this is really a technical term within our field that may not be understood by audiences who don't have that background or that training. So if you are trying to reach a broader audience outside of behavior analysis, working with a collaborator who's gonna know that language and gonna know how to take the behavior analytic concept that you're trying to convey, but do it more broadly or do it in a way that is going to be impactful for that particular readership can be really helpful. Yeah, that's a really great point. And it might, when you go to submit to that journal, it might also give you a little more um, face validity or whatever with the people who are gonna be reviewing your paper. That's all very, very helpful. Thank you. One thing, one other thing I would add to that. I mean, I, Claire's right about we talk funny. And one of the reasons that we do is that we try to talk in terms of environment behavior interactions. We try to avoid dualistic language, which is extremely difficult in English, but not impossible. And there are a few people whose writing I have really admired. Uh, who, and one of the reasons that I've admired it is because they found language and found ways to write for multiple audiences without sacrificing your integrity and are without, you know, buying, well, well without sacrificing your integrity. So, Part of being a writer is being a reader and finding uh, some of those folks whose writing is especially good at that, doing those sorts of things can be very helpful for you. Um, and imitate them, don't plagiarize them, but um, please, but, but pay close attention to how, to the technology techniques that they're using of how they are phrasing things. So many good points you all made in your answers. Thank you so much for providing that insight. To sort of add one more resource that the listeners may be interested in, ABAI, for, for people interested in behavior analytic journals and maybe finding a list to begin reading or something like that, ABAI on their website has not only a web page that shows the, the journals they publish, but they also have another page adjacent to that that shows a number of behavior analytic journals that people could sort of start reading and then maybe branch out from there, looking at references and things like that that you all suggested, so, so thank you. The next question I'm gonna pose is, is perhaps a little bit of a loaded question, so I apologize for this, but it is a question that frequently comes up and that is how long does the publication process take? So one of the nice things about the ABAI journals is that our turnaround times are now publicly posted on our web pages. So if you're interested in publishing in any of the cluster of ABAI journals, you can get that information 
in quasi real time. I think they update it multiple times a year and it is right on the front page of our web pages. And then I'm, I will let somebody else talk while I look up what mine is right now. And then I can <laughs> give the up-to-date numbers. Yeah, I can do that because I have our page pulled up for behavior analysis and practice. Right now it says uh, 81 days from submission to first decision is the average and 182 days from submission to the final acceptance of papers. Um, yeah, but like Claire said, that's it's a moving metric, right? Because it's always updated. Yeah, for POBS, that number is interesting. It's something like 31 days from submission to first decision. But I will confess that that number is skewed a little bit because we get a lot of papers that are simply not appropriate. And I return them within hours or maybe days of when they're received. So um, that brings that number down. From submission to acceptance, the number, the number is 235 days. And that, in my opinion, is too long. Uh, I would like to get that number down. Uh, the reason is that a lot of papers go through sometimes two rounds of reviews, uh, and that can take a lot of time. Um, yeah, and sometimes it's contingent on the authors, right, Chris? Um, you know, a, an ed ex associate editor may make a decision, but the authors may take, I've had several authors recently asking me for extra time um, and to extend the deadline for their revision because they've been very busy. And so sometimes that's a factor of not necessarily the reviewers, but of the authors. And that's fine. I'm not like criticizing. I think everybody's really kind of struggling to keep up with things right now. So oh, yeah. people are asking for extra time and, and, you know, uh, I'm always like, sure, that's fine. <laughs> Actually, just last week, I, I went through the journal and look for um, papers that were delayed and contacted the author said, you know, we like your paper. Um, what's going on? And do, you, do you still, are you still interested in sending it to the journal? And, and, and the, the modal reply was, yes, we are. We're trying to get it. We're trying to get it to you in a few weeks, which I take to mean six or eight weeks, but yeah, some, some of it depends on authors. Some of it, of course, depends on reviews. Uh, and some papers, you know, especially, you know, the, the sorts of review papers we get at POBS can take a long time to review. They, they can, um, uh, reviewing those kinds of papers is, is in, my, in my experience anyway, is different from reviewing, reviewing the um, standard um, um, experimental report. So the up-to-date numbers on education and treatment of children right now are 57 days from submission to first decision and 150 days from submission to acceptance. And let me put a quick shout out to my standing associate editors and guest associate editors who have worked really hard um, to make those timelines as short as possible for authors based on all of the factors that, that Stephanie and Chris um, just described because it's not all in any single person's hands that, that timeliness through the, through the system. But it's, it's a while. Right, so by the time people read things that are published, it is probably a year or more since that study was conducted. So even under the quickest of timelines, it's there's still a delay. Yeah, because keep in mind that even after the acceptance occurs, there's a lot of process that happens after that before you actually see it in print, right? So uh, it's gotta go to people who will typeset it 
Um, and then authors get a chance to look at that again and proof it and make sure the typesetters got everything right. We got the figures in the right place. Uh, and sometimes there's a little back and forth there to get it right. And um, then it comes back to the editor for proofing and review and it may go back and forth again at that point, hopefully not. But, um, and then of course it goes into the, at least for BAP, uh, once it gets past all of that, it goes to publication online for the like early first view kind of uh, look. And something I learned as the incoming editor of BAP that I never knew before I was an editor was that um, something has to be published online for at least 30 days before they can actually put it in an issue. So uh, sometimes that can be a holdup too, like it can't go into the next issue because it hasn't been published online for 30 days yet. So if it can't get into that issue, now it's not going to come out till the next issue, which is at least three months later, right? Um, and presently, uh, so this last issue that we just put together on direct instruction and precision teaching, that filled the whole issue. So everything else that I have that has been sitting there already out there for 30 days is still waiting for its turn to come out in, in an actual issue. So yeah, I think at best, as Claire was indicating, it might be a year. Sometimes it's longer just because it's waiting its turn to, to actually come out in an issue. It is, it is very, very important that authors look closely at the page proofs when they come, come across. It is, I've always known it was important. I've never realized how important it was until I got in this role. Uh, it's so important that I've written uh, a, a checklist of things that are easy to overlook. You know, you've gone through the review process, you've interacted with editors, you've done all that. And by the time it is published, you're so ready to be done with this paper and move on to, the, to, to your life. Um, but that is not the appropriate way to view this. There are things that you have not paid much attention to in the review process. The spelling of your institution. Are all the authors that should be listed actually listed? Are their names spelled correctly? Uh, look at the title, look at the abstract closely. The abstract is your public face to the world. People decide whether to read your paper based on the abstract, but it's one of the last things that's looked at. Um, and like I said, I've made a list of this. And whenever, whenever an author gets the page proof, I send them this list and I say, here are the things that are easy to overlook. Um, I've had a couple of people reply back and said, gee, thanks. Um, but um, it, it's helpful. The other thing is, and another reason to pay close attention to this is that when it gets published online, a DOI number has been assigned to it. And once that DOI number has been assigned, it is cast in stone. And the only way to make a change is with an erratum. And after having to publish a, um, my first or second um, um, journal uh, issues, at I didn't like seeing an erratum published right next to the article. I mean, and that's when I wrote this list of things to look for. Um, but um, it, 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 is, it is the only way to make a change. Um, you know, if you want to acknowledge somebody, if you have to acknowledge a grant, for example, 
it's got to be done with an erratum. And some editors are going to say, I'm sorry, you had your chance. That's not worth an erratum. Also, just to underscore, this is this paying attention to page proofs thing while we're on the things I didn't think about until I was an editor list. The paying attention to page proofs is definitely one of the things for me that I did not think about as much as I think about now from my own scholarship since I became an editor because weird stuff happens in the copy editing process. And you have people who are, you know, in some cases they have to reformat a table. And sometimes that means that they're retyping numbers or they're moving columns around. And I never thought before of like, I should check the numbers in my table, right? But like, yep, I should check the numbers in my table and actually read to look for what changes a copy editor might've made in your text. Um, particularly because not all copy editors are behavior analysts, right? Like copy editors serve a variety of different journals. These are not your reviewers. These are not your AEs who are experts in the area. And sometimes they struggle dealing with some of the technical terms um, and they suggest changes that are not the changes that you would want your paper to have. So definitely do, you know, if you get to the point, if you're fortunate to get to the point, you have a paper accepted and it's gone through the process and you've got the copy edits and the proofs, like don't just breeze past those, like do take the time to take a look at them. Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, Chris, I, I wanna see your checklist. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be emailing you after this podcast um, to see if I can have a look at that. But yeah, we- sure, I'll be happy to and, and, and feel free to add stuff to it, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, if you um, don't mind, I, I may ask, uh, Chris, if you don't mind sharing, I'll, I can post it as a link with the podcast so that everyone listening can have access to it. No problem. Yeah, I mean, um, this is embarrassing for me to admit, but we had a paper published and one of my co-authors last names was not spelled correctly. And we didn't notice it till it was already out. And we were like, why, when we go to look it up, why can't we find it, you know? because the name's not spelled right. So we asked them to fix it. And that was my first hard lesson in the fact that these things are carved in stone now that they're out in that early view. And they had to publish an errata to, uh, to fix it. So now there's two versions of that paper out there, one where it's spelled correctly and one where it's not, um, which is discouraging, right? So I wish that we had caught that. And, you know, I learned that lesson the really hard way. And I heard a heard a story once from another editor that um, like a, a figure or a graph in the paper got messed up and the copy editors actually inserted a graph from like a biology paper into a behavior analysis paper um, that didn't even make sense, you know? Uh, so it's just really important that you check your figures, check your tables, just check all that stuff because um, I'm sure the person who made that mistake certainly didn't mean to do that but it's really important to catch those things. So I, as an editor, I'm going through and looking at it pretty carefully too, but um, you know, I look at a lot of papers. So it's hard for me to, if a number's wrong in a table or it's another behavior analytic figure, it could be easy for me to overlook that that's not the right figure. So I think Chris's advice for authors to really, really look carefully is very solid advice. Yeah, thank you all for sharing that. I recently submitted a paper with a first-time author, and we got an, a, an, accept, an accept with revisions. And when we got the accept with revisions, first-time author was like, cool, we did it. 
I said, man, you have no idea what we're in for still. <laughs> There's so much work to be done, even with an acceptable revisions, which then, of course, required us to make changes in the paper. We had a second round of that as well. And then getting into the, the copy editing done through the actual publisher, not the journal. So it can be a lot of work. Of course, it, it's very meaningful work to do. And I was also happy to hear that all of your journals post the sort of timeline as, as best as you can approximate it on your websites. I think that's very, very helpful. As you all said, even with those sort of quick decisions, you're still probably looking at potentially a year in, in many cases to it actually being published. And so that's something that listeners should should sort of plan for as, as they begin to publish papers themselves. Let oh. me just say one more thing. And this is kind of, this is a little bit of a distraction, but it's, I, I think it's important to keep in mind. And that is that we in academia frequently um, pay a lot of attention or pay attention to the impact factor of journals. And it's helpful, I think, for people to know what that impact factor is. And it is pertinent to this time lag. The impact factor is calculated only based on three years. Hmm. So it is, it is the number of citations to a paper, to papers over the last three years um, divided by the number or um, divided by the number of papers in the last published in the last three years. So there's a very narrow window there. Uh, and you know, I mean, I mean, just think about it. It, it. it takes, you know, a year to get through publication. And once it's published, it takes a year for the next paper to get published. And that's a year into that impact factor window. So it is very much a matter of what have you done for me lately? We in behavior analysis, at least I do, and many, many that I know do, love to refer to old papers. Uh, it's just, you know, and, and, we like to feel that we are built, we are developing a cumulative science here, but somehow that doesn't get reflected. I mean, there is a five-year impact factor. I honestly pay more attention to that. I think that's more important, but, um, but um, you know, TMP committees and things like that, I think frequently don't understand those nuances, but it is a useful thing to keep in mind. Yes, thank you for sharing that. The other piece I'll mention about turnaround time on, on journals and publication is keep in mind, all the people who review, edit your paper are all volunteers with careers and publication goals of the, uh, for themselves. And so the fact that each of these journals that we've talked about have posted publicly their turnaround time and, and have you know very reasonable turnaround times is just indicative of, of the, the quality of sort of volunteers that they're attracting to do reviews and, and editing. So um, that's really great to hear. Now, I wanna be mindful of time. We've got uh, around probably 30 minutes left here. I do wanna get into review editing questions, but there are a couple of quick sort of author researcher questions that I still want to target. And the first is, and this isn't on theme for what we've been talking about, when you submit a paper, 
and you're asked to revise that paper, perhaps it's a reject with an opportunity to resubmit or it's accept with, with revisions, are you obligated to accept all of that feedback or is there, is there flexibility in if, if, if a reviewer or editor tells you to do one thing, can that be a conversation or is that a, you just do what they tell you to do? No, you are not. But you are obligated to address them. Um, as you said, reviewers are volunteers. They're also very busy people. Um, people who get asked to review manuscripts are people who are productive. Um, you know, somebody once told me, if you want to get something done, give it to a busy person. Um, <clears throat> the, but that means that they make mistakes sometimes. Are they not quite, it's not quite clear. We're, you know, they're not coming from the same perspective that you are. So you're not obligated to um, make every change by any means, but I think you are obligated to address those um, changes. If not, you're gonna have a professor X that is just nothing but miffed at you. Um, so you should say, you know, this is a good point. Um, I, I see where this reviewer is coming from, but here's why we want to do it this way. And offer a good reason for it. And always proceed your, it, it's cliched, but I, it, it helps. Always proceed your, your global response to the reviews as, I want to thank the reviewers for spending time, yada, yada. Um, it's helpful. Um, don't do it over and over again, you just begin to look kind of weird, but, um, but once or twice is nice to do. I was, also going to add that sometimes it can be, you know, you get some feedback and you're not quite sure what to do with it. And it's not an easy decision whether to make that change or not. Um, there may be some nuances that you want to, would like to share. And you, and you can't really do that with the reviewer because you don't know who the reviewer is, but you could do that with the associate editor who's handling the paper. So, I would also say to people to, to not necessarily be afraid to reach out to the AE and say, I have some questions uh, or could, I'd like to talk to you about this piece of feedback. Um, I think most AEs would be pretty open to that and would be happy to, to talk you through. Like if you don't understand what they're asking you to do or you do understand, but you're a little concerned about doing uh, what they're asking for whatever reason, um, and sometimes it's hard to communicate all that in, in back and forth email. It might be easier to just, you know, get on the phone or get on a Zoom call and, and have a discussion about it. Just quickly for people who are not familiar with the publication process about who can see, who knows what about whom. Um, so the editor, when your paper is submitted to any of our journals, all of our journals, um, everybody on this call um, runs a double blind review process. Uh, and so that means that when you submit a paper, you're going to submit it with your author information, um, but also with a title page that de-identifies that, that just has your title, but without any identifying information. The editor, and at least for education treatment of children, and I'll let Chris and Stephanie tell me if it's any different for anybody else, um, the editor and the associate editor can see that information. And this is important so that we don't accidentally assign the author of the paper to handle the paper as the associate editor or the author of the paper to be a reviewer for the paper. 
because you are not and you would not be an unbiased reviewer for your own paper, right? It also allows us to make sure that um, we're not assigning your student to be the reviewer for your paper. Um, and this is really important because students who have worked with me, they often do treatment integrity work, right? So they might be a natural fit if you didn't know who had submitted the initial paper. However, your reviewers don't know who the author of the paper is. And when you get the, the feedback back, what you would get is a decision letter from your associate editor that is signed. So you know who your associate editor was that handled your paper. And then a series of reviews um, where you often don't know who the reviewers are. You would only know who the reviewer was if the reviewer self-disclosed. Um, so you, per Stephanie's point a moment ago, just to make that more clear, if you've never been through the process, um, you would have a point of contact of somebody who knew that they had handled your paper and you would know that your paper was handled by that person. Um, but there's this additional layer that is blind to reduce the possibility of publication bias. Thank you for providing the context of the review process. To ask a follow-up question related to that, in my experience, a lot of the journals, behavior analytic journals I've submitted to, provide you the opportunity to request a reviewer. Could you explain what that means and, and who would be appropriate to request versus not? Yeah, let me dive in on that. First, let me say uh, at PLBS, we, have, we also have double-blind reviews like Claire was de describing where um, the author doesn't know who the reviewers are and the reviewers don't know who the author is. We're having discussions right now and I think we're moving in the direction of going to single-blind um, in which the author does not know who the reviewer is. I think it is exceedingly important that that is the case. Um, but where the reviewer would know who the author is. Uh, and there, there are good reasons for wanting to go in that direction. Actually, there are good reasons either way. Uh, but we are, in the, we are in the process of, um, I, I hope, uh, moving in that direction. Uh, there's still a final couple final things to, um, to happen before that occurs. But requesting a reviewer, it's a great idea. You should do it. Um, and don't request a buddy. Uh, that, that's not a good idea. Uh, if the AE uh, detects that you're doing that, it will raise an eyebrow and you don't want raised eyebrows at that stage in the process. But, um, but you know better than maybe the AE who is in the area and who can provide a review. And I always recommend request somebody who's going to be critical. Request some, have, this has been my practice too, because if there are any problems with this paper, you want them worked out before it goes to press. So request somebody who's gonna write the review that you throw against the wall and stop around about and then come back and say, yeah, they may have a point. Um, uh, that's the kind of review that you want. And the reason you want that kind of review is that as a scholar, you wanna produce rigorous and reproducible research. And it are, the people who are going to give your article a good hard shake, right? And say like, does this comport with what I know? How does this sit within the literature? 
if the findings are discrepant from what's already been published, is that because this is a, a novel procedure or it was implemented in a different way? And, and is the rationale for that clear? And you want all of that to be clear because you want somebody else to be able to pick up your article and do that systematic replication that shows that that finding was real. That's what our whole science is based on. Uh, so you do want reviewers who are the experts in the area. And if you request somebody, that's, that's the reason to request somebody. And that's the kind of person to request. Notably, we can't always do that. So if you request, you know, let's say that, that you love Professor X and you want Professor X, Professor X is the expert. And you think this person is going to be really able to best evaluate the quality of this manuscript. Um, it is possible that we ask Professor X to handle it as the associate editor or to serve as a reviewer and Professor X is busy and they can't. So just because, or um, there's a reason why we don't think that Professor X is a good choice. So just because you request somebody doesn't necessarily mean that that person will end up um, managing the paper in some way. And don't even try to guess who the reviewers are. People have told me that they know who the reviewers are. It's not right. They've told me that they know that Professor Y was the idiot who said that this paper should be rejected because he's an enemy of mine. And it turns out Professor Y was the one that wrote the glowing review because he's in the area, he knows the issues are, and he thought that you did a great job of addressing them. So just don't even go down that road. It's, it's hard not to do, but don't do it. Yeah, I loved your comment about giving the paper a hard shake, Claire. My uh... My mentor used to say to me, you know, the reviewer's job is to help help us from like not saying something stupid that we're going to regret later, because once something's published, it's like published. And we all know how once it's published, uh, you know, to just take the vaccine stuff for kids with autism and how hard it is to unring a bell that's been rung in the literature. And so, you know, the work you're putting out there. Um, as Dave used to put it, it's going into the Library of Congress. So you want it to be good, right? Um, so that's the reviewer's role is to, to help you, help you look better and not say something stupid. Um, and to your point that sometimes uh, people that are nominated to be reviewers, like they're too busy or whatever. So I always find it helpful when people nominate more than one. Uh, you know, if they give me two or three that they would like to see review the paper that's helpful in case one of the ones i pick and ask to work on the paper is too busy i have some others and i also really like it when they give me a little rationale for why they're asking for that person um, i find that exceedingly helpful as i'm looking at their paper and it sort of goes with what chris was saying about don't pick your, don't pick your buddy or somebody who you think is going to like go easy on you it, it helps me as the editor go yeah you're picking people for good reasons, right? <laughs> on, because they bring expertise to the table on this. And I think that it's especially helpful for me as an editor, if the paper is on like a highly specialized topic that I may not have an easy time identifying who the right person maybe to handle the paper is. So um, I'm always especially appreciative when, when people have helped me out that way. The rationales are also helpful because we do try to have balanced review panels. So if I get a paper that is a mixed method evaluation that includes a qualitative, so they're doing focus groups and then following that up with some experimental piece, like I will want a qualitative methodologist to look at that paper 
But if it's about children with emotional behavior disorders, I probably also want a specialist in emotional behavior disorders. And so if you say like, this person would be a great choice because of their expertise in qualitative methodology, I know what slot in my diverse review panel that person would fill. And it, and that is more helpful than just saying this person would be a good choice, period. And does the pool of potential reviewers, both from ones that authors may suggest themselves, but also the ones that the AEs are selecting, again, they're not supposed to be friends, associates, but are those primarily coming from like people you're, you're citing within your research and, and people you know that are doing similar work? Where, where does that sort of pool come from? Well, I can tell you how I handle it as an associate editor when I'm, when I'm handling a manuscript. Um, I always try to get one or two of the reviewers that have been recommended, um, if, if there's a good rationale for it, of course. And I always try to get one or two reviewers who are not on that list. Uh, first place I look is the editorial board. Um, you know, the editorial board is there for a reason. So uh, that, that's always our go-to place. But I have to admit, I, I, every so often I send an email reminding the associate editors that, to, to remember that there's an editorial board um, and, and to use them. Um, and when I'm reading a manuscript, I'll circle names that come up a couple of times in the, in the paper and, uh, you know, consider using them depending on their seniority and, and appropriateness and other things, but uh, frequently go to PubMed or something like that to look look those folks up to to um, see if they're appropriate. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it comes from any source of information that you can get. For people interested in potentially serving as a reviewer or being on an editorial board, how would you go about volunteering yourself to do something like that? So I always tell people um, to email me and tell me about their interest in serving as a guest reviewer. Uh, send me their vita. Send me a little statement about areas they feel like they have competency in to serve as a reviewer. And I try to collect that information and send it out to my associate editors. So as they are handling manuscripts, they can pull in some folks for guest reviews and, and uh, ask them for their service and get a chance to have them work together on it. I think another way to do that is to publish in the journal. So for example, people who are publishing in, in BAP are gonna be ones I'm gonna go to when I'm looking for like guest associate editors to handle the paper or some of my edit, my uh, AEs are going to look to to select as guest reviewers and try to get them involved in the process. Another way to do that, uh, Stephanie's way is the best way, but another way, maybe not the best way, but is a path, is to register to be a reviewer for the journal. And so for education and treatment of children, for example, um, if you go to our main website and then you click submit a manuscript, which makes no sense because you're not gonna submit a manuscript. 
uh, it is going to take you to a login screen. And at the bottom of that login screen, there's a series of links. And one of them says register now. And so you can add yourself into the education and treatment of children database of humans who do things. Uh, and as part of that process, you identify areas that you have some expertise. What our AEs can do is when they get a submission that has those areas tagged in it, it they can do a search in the database for other people who have those same keywords, who have said that they have expertise in that area. And so in addition, perhaps to emailing an editor in chief, it's handy if you have yourself in the system, because it's a good reminder from that initial email that you're out there. Because when you email one of us, we probably won't have a manuscript that comes across our desk that same day that would be a great fit for you that you could get involved with right away. And so doing both of those steps might help. And then I think the second part that you asked, Cody, was how do you get involved on the editorial board? Like how do you get to the point that you're doing not just guest reviews, but regular reviews for a journal? And the best way to do that is to do really good guest reviews, right? So getting your foot in the door, as Stephanie mentioned, and starting to do that and doing a good job with it. So when you get invited to do these, don't make them a, a like last priority of something that you scoot off at, at the last minute or even worse, four or five days later than it was due. Um, but if you are doing timely, high quality reviews, that's how you get asked to do more. And when you are doing those quasi regularly for a journal and we're like, you are becoming a go-to person, we should make you one of our go-to people. And that's how you land on an editorial board. If you find yourself reviewing for a particular journal frequently, um, are submitting to a particular journal frequently. I think it's okay to contact an associate editor um, if you, if you, that you know, or you know, especially if you have a good relationship with them or the, or the editor-in-chief and say, you know, I've been involved with this journal for a while. I'm interested in being on the editorial board when you have an opening. The best time to do this would be oh, probably in the fall, which is <laughs> when we start thinking about these things. Uh, yeah, like right now. Um, uh, but th that's acceptable. I haven't seen that happen very often, but it does happen. I'd like to add one more thing. Um, so earlier you were, you were asking, Cody, how we select people to, to be reviewers for a paper. And one of the things when I was acting as a, an associate editor that I did a lot, <clears throat> as you know, like Chris, I would have one or two senior people, and then I might have some others and some guests uh, and very often I would invite student reviewers to um, participate in the process as a student. So I might reach out to one of my colleagues like Claire and say, hey, do you have a student who uh, is working in, you know, I know you guys do work in um, uh, treatment fidelity and I've got a paper on treatment fidelity. Do you have a student who might want to be a reviewer on this? And uh, so I'll recruit student reviewers. And for those... Uh, listeners who might be faculty member or or for their students if they're listening the other thing i do uh, since i don't handle a lot of papers myself right now um, i will still get occasionally asked to be a reviewer on a paper and although i'm sometimes nervous to say yes because of everything else on my plate i will say yes because i know what it's providing is an opportunity for my students to get a chance to practice and 
So I will often reach out to the AE and say, hey, do you mind if I ask a couple of my students to help me with this review? And then I'll reach out to my students and uh, allow them the opportunity to read it, talk it over with each other, write a draft review and send it to me. And then I read the paper independent of that, formulate my own ideas. And then I read what the students wrote and I sort of mash it up and, and, and send a review that's a mashup of their review and my review. And then when I submit that to uh, whatever portal I'm uploading that to, I type in the comments that these students helped me with this review so that they get some practice and also the AEs get to know, oh, there's some students out there who might be ready to start reviewing. So working with, if you're a student, working with your faculty um, supervisor is another good way to sort of get in into the process. Thank you all for sharing that information. I'll add one way that I've personally got into doing reviewing, which is the, the associate editors who handled the papers that I submitted when doing, you know, my best to, to take the revision seriously and complete them in a timely manner in an organized way. I think that tends to show the quality of your work. And I think that that may be attractive to associate editors who are ultimately going to potentially be the people asking others to review. And so if you're submitting work, you're being respectful and timely in, in your revisions, I think that tends to uh, make the AEs want to invite you to be reviewers in the future. At least that's been my experience. Now, the time has flown by. Uh, there, there, you guys provided so much helpful content in this interview. So thank you all. I do need to be respectful of your time. And so we'll, we'll call things here. Thank you again for your, your insights and sharing your wealth of, of knowledge with the listeners of BAPCAST. If there's any quick things that you want to add now, you're, you're welcome to. Otherwise, we'll, we'll call it. Thank you all. Just a quick thank you, Cody, for doing this. I think it was a, um, I hope it's a good, I hope it's a useful thing for people. Yeah, uh, it was fun, and I hope it's useful to people because I found myself several times going, "Wow, oh, that's a great idea," or "That's a great insight." So I enjoyed it <laughs> myself. And I hope it underscores that we're not terribly scary people. Uh, so you know, it, we've said a couple of times, "Yeah, email us," and that is that is a real thing. So if you have something important to say, our email boxes, I'm sure, don't need extra emails that don't have a, a clear purpose to them. But if you have a reason to contact an editor-in-chief for a journal, please don't hesitate to do that. Like we are indeed here to, to help and help promote the scholarship of the next generation of behavior analysts. Awesome. Thank you all so much. Okay, that does it for our show today. Before you take off, remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use. Find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and to suggest recent bat papers that we should review. Links to social media can be found in our show notes. Finally, I'd like to thank a few people for helping create this podcast. Thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. And thank you to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervaez and Jesse Perrin. Finally, I'd like to thank Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, 
for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast.